All right, while everybody is coming in and taking their seat, um, just a reminder on the Samaritan's Purse boxes that are out there, this is Franklin Graham's ministry, and we do this every year at Christmas, so there's information. The boxes are there to fill up what they need. All of that information is there. The deadline for returning those boxes is this Sunday, November 12th. Schedule-wise, there will be no Bible class on Thanksgiving Day, and we will have our annual Thanksgiving slash Christmas uh, luncheon on December the 10th, Sunday, December the 10th, following the morning worship service. Also, on the trips, uh, a lot of interest out there. A few people haven't signed up for the D.C. trip, and those hotel rooms are going to become short before long. Also, on the Israel trip, as we've announced, it's important that if you plan to go, to we need confirmation. We need that to be taken care of. As soon as we get a pretty good idea of how many are going, then there's certain. the larger the group, the more uh, extracurricular activities uh, we can provide. And so once we uh, get a good handle on that, then I can start spe- uh, uh, processing and committing to nailing down some extra extra speakers and and events. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're spiritually ready to study the word. That means that if necessary, we need to confess sin, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sin to God, and instantly he forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That is true for the believer. For the unbeliever, the issue is faith in Christ. Once we're a believer, we sin. We still sin, but when we do, it simply breaks that rapport with the Father, just as in the human realm, it breaks our rapport with our parents, but then that needs to be restored uh, through confession. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this time that we have to come together this evening just to study your word, to come to understand what is going on, not just in the world around us, but in the cosmic system, the cosmos around us, the universe, that we are not the only sentient beings, but there's another group called angels that have been created by you in eternity past. And Father, what we go through, what we see in life is often a reflection of something that goes on in the angelic realm. And it is so important for us as believers to understand that. Help us as we study this to learn about the angels and the satanic rebellion, the demons, and all of these things and how it impacts the history of your plan for the human race. And Father, we pray too for those who are in this congregation who are suffering uh, illnesses. We pray that you'd strengthen them. Some uh, are in... (coughs) some final stages perhaps, or final diseases, and we pray that you'd strengthen them. They might have a good testimony to their caregivers as well as to family. And Father, we pray that you would be glorified in what they're going through. Father, we pray all of these things now in Christ's name. Amen. 
All right, open your Bibles to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19. <clears throat> it may appear, once we're all done with this study in Peter, that the number of lessons on chapter 3 will exceed probably the number of lessons on almost any other chapter that we've studied, simply because we had a six-month special on apologetics or giving an answer coming out of 315. And now in this chapter, we need to have a review of the angelic conflict, the angelic rebellion. And so that's what we'll get into tonight. That is very much a part of what is being said in this passage in verse 18, which deals with Christ's unjust suffering, that example. And that, if you look at your English Bible, the last thing said in verse 17 is, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Then when we get to the next verse, it begins with for, or in the, in the Greek, it's because. So it's directly tied together. So verse 18 is explaining the reason behind verse 17. When we look at chapter 4, verse 1, it reads, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind. So that takes us then uh, directly into the same idea. So everything between 3.18 and 4.1 all somehow, as I pointed out last week, relates to explaining this principle. And verse 19, as we go into it tonight, is the la- is really the last part of the sentence that verse 18 begins. So that introduces us to the topic of the spirits in prison, which relates to angels and demons and some things that happened in the Old Testament. And so we have to take this apart. And from what I have uh, seen looking back through the website, I don't think I have really taught uh, anything more than some summary principles on the angelic rebellion for maybe 10, 10 years, maybe 11 years. So this is going to be a little more of, a, of an in-depth review, which is, which is necessary for all of us. So verse 18 begins, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And last time I talked about the fact that even though these are almost identical grammatical constructions in the Greek, they can be translated differently and understood differently. Being put to death in the flesh is uh, pictures Christ's physical death. Made alive by the Spirit is the Spirit's role in energizing his uh, resurrection body, bringing life back to his human body where it's being transformed from being mortal to immortal, given a new body that is, that is raised from the dead. So that is what we studied last time, but that immediately goes into verse 19, which introduces this illustration that relates to Noah that is covered in the next few verses. And verse 19 reads, By whom also he, that is Jesus, 
went and preached or proclaimed. It's just, there are two words usually translated preached in English. One is based on the Greek verb evangelizo, where we get our English word evangelism. And the other is uh, keruso, which is the word for proclamation. And that's what we have here is the word proclamation. He goes to uh, somewhere, these, this prison, and he makes a proclamation to these spirits. And then they're identified in verse 20 as those who were formerly disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. So this takes us back to an event in uh, Genesis chapter 6. While the ark was being prepared, so this, trans- this takes place before the flood, during the 120 years that, um, that Noah is building the ark, in which a few that is, and in which refers to the ark, that is eight souls were saved through, through water. Now there's some really interesting and somewhat bizarre interpretations of this verse. It was a very, very popular view in the early church that to take this to mean that, that the pre-incarnate Christ preached an Old Testament gospel through Noah, to that generation. That was, that was one popular view. Another view that was also somewhat popular in the, in the early church was that <clears throat> this is a, that the spirits in prison were Old Testament unbelievers that were killed at the flood, and Jesus has given them a second chance. That, too, was popular in the early church. There were some bizarre ideas that floated around in the, in the early, early church, but that is not what this text is really talking about, and we'll get into that as we go through our study. But the point I want to make to begin with is that this episode and the things that are said about it is that it involves a prison, it involves a group of spirits, which is another term for, a, for angels, uh, whether they're good or elect angels or whether they're evil or fallen angels. They're all spirit beings. And that this group of spirits are identified as having been disobedient to God, some form of rebellion, at the time in human history prior to the flood. So that is an important thing to understand. Now, we get more detail on this when we look at a parallel reference in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. There we're told that, uh, Peter says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned. So there we see that these spirits in prison are also identified as angels. And the Greek word there is angelos. So that's a broad term, a broad classification And we're going to see that these actually involve just one group of fallen angels. God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell. And that's a mistranslation. The Greek is Tartarus, which is a a compartment in Sheol or Hades. Uh, That is not the same as hell. In fact, the English word hell has a Norwegian origin, comes out of Norse mythology, and I don't think the word ought to be used in a translation at all because it really confuses things. You've got words like Gehenna, 
Hebrew words like Gehenna for the valley of, of Hinnom, Gay Hinnom in the Hebrew, and that that is um, the valley of Hinnom is tr- also translated hell or hellfire. That gets confusing because it's not talking about the lake of fire. We, we get this word uh, very much confused. Uh, most people think of hell as the lake of fire, but this isn't the lake of fire. It's Tartarus. Gehenna isn't the lake of fire. It's the valley of Hinnom. And we've studied that a bit in the Matthew series. So here in Second Peter 2.4, we read, If God did not spare the angels who sinned, it's an illustration of God's judgment on disobedience, but cast them in down to Tartarus. Notice, and we covered Sheol in our Psalm 18 series just a, a few weeks ago. Notice that, as, as Joe points out, there, it, it, it's got a location. talks about up. For heaven, down for Sheol. So they they were delivered down to uh, Tartarus, in, which is in Sheol, and delivered them into chains of darkness. That gives us more detail on the word prison that's used in First uh, Peter three nineteen to be reserved for judgment. So that means that there will be a future a trial. For these and sentencing for these particular fallen angels, and that event described in verse four is also located at the time of Noah, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness. I think that's an important word there. We don't, we're not told a lot about Noah and what he did during that 120 years, but this indicates that he proclaimed righteousness. And I have, we, we've taught this in the past, I've gone through Isaiah 53, I've gone through other things, that if you want a way to perhaps uh, communicate the gospel to a Jewish person, talking about righteousness is, is really a key thing to talk about. How do you become Righteous. And just asking that question, how can a fallen person become righteous? And just leave it at that, because the word translated righteous in the Old Testament, it's tzedakah, which in rabbinical thought began to be nuanced in the direction of doing good works. And and, and that sort of morphed into charitable deeds. And that's part of modern uh, Judaism is reforming the world, reforming the world. And that's, that's the big idea that, that why do Jews exist? To, to basically reform the world, to clean up the world. And that's, that's got its own set of problems. But the idea there is you do it through tzedakah, through righteousness. And so you can go to passages like Isaiah uh, 65 and talk about all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. Well, if all of our works of righteousness are filthy rags, how do you become righteous? Then you go back to Genesis 15:6, and Noah, um, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. There you have it. How does a person become righteous? It's by faith alone, and then develop it from there. So that's a really important idea that Noah is a preacher not of Torah. Torah, in terms of the Mosaic law, had not come yet. He is a preacher of tzedakah. 
and he is a preacher of righteousness. So why is the gospel presented that way? And of course, we understand from uh, New Testament developments, especially in Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4, is that when Christ died on the cross, our sin was imputed to him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be found in us. So that what happens in this transaction at the cross, our sin is imputed to him, and when we believe in him, his righteousness is then given to us. And so God looks at his son's righteousness covering us and not at our unrighteousness. So we're based on that. So this idea of righteousness is critical. So Noah was a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Now, there's another parallel, much closer parallel, to this statement in Second Peter found over in Jude. Jude 6 says that the angels who did not keep their proper domain. So again, we have angels. They're called spirits in 1 Peter 3.19. They're called angels in Second. Uh, 2 Peter 2, 4, angels who sinned. And now that sin is further defined by this statement that they did not keep their proper domain. And what that means is their proper domain was in their immaterial bodies in heaven, and they left that abode. That's further defining it. And these are reserved in everlasting chains. So now we learn that not only are they... um, chains of darkness, 2 Peter 2, 4, in a prison. So all of that ties together. So it seems this is talking about the same same group. Reserved for the judgment of the great day. So like the group in 2 Peter 2, uh, 4 and 5, we have a, a future judgment. They're compared to Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities around them in a similar manner to these. Who's the these? These refers to the angels in verse 6 who didn't keep their proper abode. So the angels who didn't keep their proper abode are being compared, or Sodom and Gomorrah are being compared to those angels. And... So the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is similar to the sin of those angels. Now, isn't that interesting? And the reason I say that is because you won't believe how many people will not accept the fact that those sons of God mentioned in Genesis chapter 6 are are angels because they, they balk at this and they say, well, they can't commit sexual sin. Just because you don't understand that doesn't mean that it couldn't happen. There are ways to explain that, but the language of Genesis 6, the language of 2 Peter 2, 4, and 5, and the language of Jude 6 and 7 is very, very clear about what these angels did, that the Sodom and Gomorrah sin was similar to their sin, which means it had to be sexual immorality, That's what the text says, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange or different flesh. So as the angels, these fallen angels, were able to have sexual relations with human women, 
that's the strange flesh, different flesh from the from uh, angels. So the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is homosexuality, was classified as a similar type of sin, a sexual sin, and that's the the example there. So it's very clear that this is something that happens that is uh, extremely strange. Now, this is important for us because when we get into the real core of Peter's challenge to us about how we're to respond to unjust suffering and undeserved suffering, and you get a great chance to talk about this maybe, because there was this horrible, horrible event that took place this last Sunday morning in Sutherland Springs, Texas, where the First Baptist Church there was assaulted by by this guy who had all kinds of serious uh, problems. He was a committed atheist. He was on psychotropic drugs uh, for for uh, many years growing up as a, as a teen and many other things. And we probably don't have and may not ever have access to all the information that comes out on him. But that is a real category of unjust suffering. They They were targeted uh, probably not primarily because they were Christians or in a church, but they're they're targeted because of of his horrible uh, domestic squabbles with his with his wife and his and his in laws, and I think that was that'll come out as a primary reason he was he was assaulting that congregation. But nevertheless, it's undeserved suffering. All those children, the infants, he just targeted them from the eyewitness testimony. He went from row to row, seeking out. The making sure those babies and those young children were dead. I mean, this is just horrible, absolutely horrible. So what's our mental attitude to be? Well, the reason I go to that, that is a right now, this week, contemporary example. And when we look at 1 Peter uh, three nineteen, that pattern of Christ as the just who suffered for the unjust, and he suffered unjustly, is connected to this proclamation in verse 19. And then when you get to the close of this paragraph, we come back to to this in verse 22, where we read, who has gone into heaven, so it connects this to his ascension into heaven, it's been a long time since I've taught through the doctrines related to the ascension of Christ. We'll have to review that. Who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. That means he's seated from the, and, and from the old English, we refer to that as the session of Christ. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And what is it being emphasized here? Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. So our mentality and how we handle and address either unjust suffering directed toward us or explain unjust suffering that's related to others is ultimately as a Christian, our answer comes back to an understanding of the transaction on the cross as undeserved suffering, much worse than anything that happened in the Holocaust, much worse than anything that happened in Sutherland Springs or any other example uh, that you can think of in human history, much, much worse, and that this is directly connected to the, to the angels, to the spirits in prison, 
to Christ's exaltation in his humanity. In his deity, he's always been over the angels. But what happens in the ascension, the God-man the hypostat- in hypostatic union, the Son of God, the Son of Man, united, deity and humanity united together forever, ascend to heaven, sit at the right hand of the Father. There's a human at the right hand of God the Father. He's the God-man. And he is given authority over the angels. How does that work together? And that is really a key to understanding and being able to answer the question, why is there sin and evil? Someone emailed me, texted me, messaged me, whatever it is. There's so different, many, many different ways today that on, um, I think it was on Monday morning, there were some people, I'm not going to mention their names, there were some people who were being interviewed in, I think it was um, the morning show on Fox News, Christians, and asked to explain, why does this happen? And they fumbled the ball. You know, people who are held up as, as leaders in the Christian community, and they, they had no answer. That's embarrassing. That's embarrassing. We need to have an answer. The book of Job in the Old Testament is what gives us that answer for why there is suffering. And what happens when we get into Job? Well, the first thing you run into at the beginning of Job is you get the curtains drawn back on heaven, and you see the throne of God and the sons of God, as we'll see, this is a term for all of the angels and includes both fallen angels as well as elect and holy angels that all of the angels are gathered before the throne of God. And God says to Satan, have you taken a look at, at my buddy Job? He's, he's my man. He, he is worshiping me, and he's done nothing wrong. He's blameless. Look at him, and Satan goes, well, I bet if I take all the perks away, he's not going to be worshiping you. I'm modernizing the dialogue a little bit. If if you take away all the blessings, he's not going to worship you because the only reason he does is he's getting goodies from you. And so God says, okay, you can do whatever you want. You just can't touch him. You can't, you can't take his life. And so he, in the next segment, you learn about the fact that he loses all of his children. They all die in a, a windstorm. You learn that he loses, uh, raiders come in and um, they destroy all of his uh, animals, all of his herds, his cattle, his sheep, his camels, everything. His wealth is wiped out. His family is wiped out. He loses most of his possessions, but he won't curse God. He's still going to worship God. He's giving evidence that God is worshiped because it's right, because it's true, and because God cares for us and provides for us. And he's got undeserved suffering. And and for Satan to have done that, to take in the lives of all of his children, that is as horrid as what we just saw this last Sunday morning. This kind of thing that happened in Sutherland Springs is not unique in history. You know, the first thing I thought of as I reflected on that is how many times were there atrocities during the colonial and the westward, colonial period and the westward expansion in the U.S. When there were uh, depredations and torture that took place at the hands 
of the American Indians towards the, the pioneers and the settlers. And if you read the accounts, they're, they're just horrific. If you read those accounts, they don't involve just, just shooting somebody. That's, a, in many cases, quick and pretty painless death. I mean, it involved incredible torture. It involved intentional torture, try to keep people alive as long as they possibly could. And in some cases, not in all cases, but in some of those cases, some of those Indians who survived, especially in the later period, I'm thinking about the late 19th century, could have happened to some in earlier, they came into contact with missionaries and they eventually uh, became believers. And one that I know of for sure who was guilty of great... Um, uh, great atrocities when he was the war chief of the Comanches was Quanta Parker. When I first taught school, when I got out of college, I worked down in Channel View, and I had a, <clears throat> shall we say, say a weight-challenged, red-headed Irishman named Eugene O'Quinn. Red hair, blue eyes, ruddy skin, his grandfather was Quanta Parker. He had some interesting stories to tell, but Quanta Parker became a believer in his in his later years. So this is you know it's God's grace. We have to understand sin, and while some sin is so much worse than other sin, all sin separates us from God, and Christ paid the penalty for sin. But we also know that God is a righteous judge, and there are there are going to be consequences at the judgment seat of Christ. So anyhow, we ha to answer this, we have to understand this thing we refer to as sometimes the angelic rebellion or the angelic conflict. A lot of different terms that uh, have been used to talk about this. Spiritual warfare is another one. Um, the satanic rebellion is uh, another one. But they're all talking about the fact that sometime, usually in eternity past, we understand that Satan l turned against God. He was the highest of God's creatures, and he turned against God, and he rebelled against God. Now, to understand this, what we need to do is address a lot of questions, a lot of things come to people's mind. And so I'm starting off with just talking about some of these basic questions that, that we're going to cover in the next three or four weeks. First of all, who are the angels? What is an angel? If you've been around very long, some of you have, some of you haven't, but if you remember the 1980s, what was the big pop buzz in the 1980s in uh, Western civilization? Now it's gone mainstream, but it was called the New Age Movement. And that was, seems rather passe now, but as part of the New Age Movement, you had this, this thing about angels. You had angels on greeting cards. You had little angel ornaments. You had angels that you'd hang from the uh, rearview mirror in your car. You had angel tattoos. You just And people gave gifts of angels, and there was all this stuff going on in pop culture about angels and how angels did this for you and did that for you and all this kind of stuff. But who are the angels? How many are there? What do they look like? Uh, what are their powers? What are their limitations? Can we 
can we see them? Are they visible to us? They, what, what, how would we recognize an angel if we saw one? Uh, then further, are there only good angels or are there evil angels? Are there good and bad angels? Um, that leads to another question. When were they created and who is Satan and who are the fallen angels? And uh, who are the demons and who are these evil spirits? And what can they do to us? What is the intersection between the physical material world wherein we live and operate and see and think and that of the immaterial uh, dimension, which is where the angels, these immaterial spirit beings, live and operate? And, and there are good angels and there are... Uh, called in the Bible holy angels or elect angels, and there are evil angels. And there are different classifications of these these evil angels as well. And so that leads to the ultimate question, which, which is, what does human history, which seems like a big term, what does human history have to do with the angels, if anything? And let's drill it down to us. What do what does this angelic rebellion have to do with your history, with your life, with my life? Where does that connect? Is this something that just, oh yeah, the Bible teaches about this, but let's get down to practicality. And as I've been trying to show, when it comes to personal undeserved suffering, the Bible is right there telling us how to understand it, how to address it, that's what Job is all about. Probably the very first book of the Bible to be written was answers this question about the role of evil and unjust, unjust suffering and connects it to the angels. That's what Peter's doing. He ties Christ's undeserved suffering and his victory over the angels directly to our understanding so that we can face and, ha- and not be just devastated, at one level, we are. It's, it's horrible when we come face-to-face with the reality of evil in this world. But it's not overwhelming. It's not, uh, it just doesn't totally, totally wipe us out as it does with some people. We can help people understand this. So we need to have a definition of what we're going to talk about when we talk about this term angelic rebellion, angelic conflict, or satanic rebellion. All of these refer to an ongoing war that began in eternity past when this creature that we identify as Satan or Lucifer or the devil, that when he rebelled against God, that this had ramifications and consequences that reverberated through the not only the immaterial universe, but also the material universe. It had consequences and there was a judgment that came along with that. And there was an eternal judgment that was also announced in, in relation to that. So this term angelic conflict refers to this intersection that takes place between this angelic rebellion and, uh, and human history. It is therefore that invisible spiritual warfare between the forces of Satan and the forces of God. And that involves not only the angelic forces, but also the human minions 
on the part of Satan that are duped by him, as well as those who have volitionally allied themselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and the sovereign God of the universe. So that's what spiritual warfare is all about. Now, spiritual warfare, again, is one of those doctrines that gets really confused and beat up uh, by a lot of modern ignorant Christians who think of it as just uh, casting out demons and beating up on Satan and all this nonsense that is displayed on television. You ought to watch some of this stuff that goes on. I I remember in uh, 1988... I was working on my doctoral dissertation and research for some courses, coursework leading up to that, and I went out to uh, Anaheim, California, to the Vineyard Church, which was pastored by John Wimber. That was the beginning, really the whole 80s and back to the late 70s was the beginning of this power evangelism. See, it's all about power over Satan, power evangelism, and... Um, and and the vineyard movement, signs and wonders movement, all that. So I went to this spiritual warfare conference. That was really interesting. I prayed a lot during that because it was just bizarre. I just thought all these Christians were probably demon-possessed. And what shocked me more than anything was some of the, the guys I knew that I had been close to in seminary 10 years earlier who were out there just lapping it up like like it was the greatest thing since peanut butter. Just really sad, the deception that goes on with this. So we need to be armed with the truth of God's Word. So the third point is just a brief overview, understanding the course of the angelic conflict. It began, uh, I believe, at some point in eternity past before the current time system began that's described in Genesis 1, 2 and following, when one of the the highest of all the angels, not one of the highest, the highest, of the angels rebelled against God. And that's described in two passages. I only put Isaiah fourteen twelve to 15 up here, but it's also covered in, in Ezekiel chapter 28, uh, verses uh, 11, 12 to 15 or 16, also similar, similar range there. And this is a taunt that comes from those who are already in Tartarus. And if we look at, uh, not Tartarus, rather, in Sheol, if we look at the context, it's really talking about the fall of the king of Babylon, who is the Antichrist. But it's looking at the power behind the human figure of the Antichrist, who is the one who deceived the nations. And that's why it begins this way, how you are fallen from heaven. And the term, the King James translated it based on the, based on the Vulgate, Lucifer, the light bearer, actually the Hebrew is Halel bin Shahar. Lucifer became a name that was applied to Satan based on this translation, but that's really sort of a misnomer. It's the bright one, the sun of the morning, which is an allusion to the morning star. Uh, How you are cut down to the ground, and then he says, you who weaken the nations. Chapter uh, 13 and 14 in Isaiah is looking forward to the final destruction of Babylon. So that's way off in the future. And when that happens, then the Antichrist is judged, and he's thrown into uh, Sheol. 
But, but the one who's really thrown down, as we learn from Revelation chapter 20, is the power behind that, behind him, which is Satan. And so this is picturing through the image of the Antichrist, the power behind him, which is, which is Satan. And he's the one who weakened the nations. And so it refers to his original sin in verses 13 and 14 with five I wills, very famous understanding this. It shows that, narc- that he is the narcissist of all narcissists. He is the king and originator of narcissism. It's all about him. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. That's I'll rule the angels. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. And that's an allusion to um, probably Syrophoenician mythology. The, the mountain on the north was sort of their Mount Olympus. If you're familiar with Greek mythology, Mount Olympus was the home of the Greek gods. Well, there is a mountain in Syria that was the home of the Syrophoenician gods, and of course we know from other passages that these false gods were really the the um, uh, the representations of demons, and so that is an allusion to that demonic host, really that are the the gods and goddesses of all the various pantheons. He says, then, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Often the clouds represent the presence of God. So he's, he's stating there he'll be above the presence of God. And he, then he says he will be like the Most High. He will rule everything, and he will depose God in his rebellion. And then they say, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol. Now, that's what, that is what will eventually happen. He's brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. And we will learn that that is the the, the bottomless pit, the abyss, and that is where Satan will be chained for a thousand years during the uh, millennial or messianic kingdom. Now, what we learn about this is after that rebellion, well, when that rebellion occurred, Satan recruited about a third of the angels. Revelation 12.4 says that, that when he is kicked out of heaven finally at the midpoint of the tribulation, that he, the dragon, will sweep away a third of the angels who will fall to the earth with him. So a third of all the angels uh, followed him in that uh, ancient rebellion, and they were sentenced to the lake of fire, Matthew twenty-five forty-one. at the time of the sheep and the goat judgments at the, right after the second coming, uh, Jesus will say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed, they've been judged, into the everlasting fire, prepared. Now, I put the Greek word up there. It means to prepare something or to make it ready or get it, get it all ready for the devil and his angels. But the, the perfect tense of the verb is used there, which means this is completed action. Okay, it's already been created. Well, if it's already been created, the question that we ought to ask is, well, why aren't they there? Why didn't God throw them into the lake of fire? And the answer to that is not specifically stated in Scripture. It's something we infer from a number of different examples and that is probably that Satan somehow challenges the justice of God, the righteousness of God, and the love of God by saying that the crime needs to fit the punishment, and eternal 
burning in the lake of fire just isn't consistent with the God who loves us. It's not just, it's not fair. And so God is going to demonstrate why it's just and fair. That sin brings immeasurable, untold, unintended consequences that bring suffering to every every aspect of the created world. And that's why it is a just punishment. We'll get into all of that. This is just an overview, a flyover of the angelic uh, conflict. Now, the next question we need to ask is, on what basis do we know anything about these invisible creatures? That's an important question because you have all kinds of stuff. You have in Christian circles and the mystics and the charismatics, you have them talk about, oh, the devil's doing this, and we know the demons involved in that. I had There was a seminary professor at Dallas Seminary, and he was absolutely convinced. He got all swept up in that vineyard movement stuff back in the back in the 80s. He lost his job at Dallas, a few, one of the few times they fired somebody for a doctrinal reason. Anyhow, he, um, uh, he told a good friend of mine who actually was sort of a, uh, I had mentored him before and through seminary, and he ran my Sunday school class at, at the time when I was pastoring up there, told him, this, this guy was one of my, was a guy I knew well and been one of my Hebrew professors and one of his Hebrew f- professors, and told him, said, whenever, whenever there is any kind of sexual abuse, there's always a demon involved. Okay. That was a prime principle in counseling. And what was happening in this particular episode, and I refer to this in, in the Spiritual Warfare book, is that th- this friend of mine and his wife were working with the lady that had come into their periphery who really had a back trail, allegedly, of a lot of sexual abuse. And so what ha- what happened, this friend of mine was, I, somebody's got to help her, and he had already directed her to another guy who was a pastor, Dallas grad, pastor over in Fort Worth, who'd also gotten sucked into all this vineyard stuff. And this guy was counseling her, and allegedly, you know, he's operating on the same assumption that sexual abuse always involves a demon. Now, where do you get that from the Bible? You know, it's it's these kinds of ideas. And so they took her through all this just horrific stuff one night, trying to do an exorcism, and she responded in kind. And and she bounced off the walls and fell on the floor and, you know, all kinds of dramatics. Several years later, after she'd gone through this and that and the other thing, she got everything straightened out, really got straight with the word, and she said, you know, I was so messed up. I was such a psychologically traumatized person that I just wanted to, to find some peace and happiness in life. I was willing to play along with anything anybody did in the hopes that it would straighten me out. And she admitted that all this was on her part. She was just doing what she thought she should do in order to make this happen because she trusted these guys. And and th- that's just a mild form of what goes on in a lot of charismatic churches. But you get outside of the realm of Christianity, it gets a whole lot worse. 
And you have all kinds of charlatans in uh, conducting seances, everything from, from seances to exorcisms to, to whatever. How do we know anything about these spirit beings? We can't see them, we can't touch them, we can't feel them. How do we know anything about them? And this also t- always takes us back to the basis of knowledge. How do we know anything for sure? There's only four ways that we know anything. Sometimes we combine them, but there's ultimately only four ways we know anything. And so I have three categories, three things, the system, what it's named, what their starting point in terms of reason is, and what the methodology is. And historically, you have rationalism, which starts with innate ideas, and ultimately the presupposition is its faith. That's why I don't have reason, experience, mysticism, and faith because they all operate presuppositionally on faith, faith in something, not faith in God, faith in something. So in rationalism, it's faith in the human ability to um, properly uh, interpret the data on the basis of the use of independent logic and reason, independent of the scriptures. So there's rationalism. Now, pure rationalism can't see, feel, taste, touch demons, so they say they don't exist. That's just a figment of your imagination. Then there's empiricism, again, based on sense perception. And so there's this external experience. They use the scientific method. It's faith, again, in human ability, and also uses independent use of logic and reason. Just a starting point is different than rationalism but it is intensely rational in the way it develops its, its understanding. But you can't, you can't put a demon or a spirit into a laboratory and measure it and weigh it or see it or any of these things. So therefore, ra- I mean, empiricism also rejects the existence of Satan, demons, angels, all of that. Then you have mysticism. And see, the whole charismatic movement is essentially mysticism reigning alongside or married to revelation. And whenever anything is married to revelation, whatever is married to revelation destroys revelation. When you have rationalism tied to the Bible, you get liberal Christianity, which really isn't Christian at all because it's reshaped the revelation to fit reason. That's the idea. So mysticism starts with inner private experience. I just feel it's this way. I'd ask these seminary professors, how do you know? How do you know that there's always a demon involved when there's sexual abuse? Well, just because there is. That's their experience. But that's a mystical experience. It's not the kind of experience in, in empiricism. It's not measurable. It's not quantifiable. So it's it's this intuitive, but it's faith in human ability. How do you know it? I just know it. I have this internal, I get in trouble for this. I get this internal hot flash. I just know it's true. I feel it. I, I know it. And you can't convince me otherwise, because unless you've had the same experience I've had, you can't judge me. So it's independent also, but it's non-logical, it's non-rational, it's non-verifiable. Over against all of these systems, we have revelation, the Word of God. It's objective revelation of God. God tells us what to think about these things, how to understand them, what the truth is, and what the lies are. And on the basis of that, no matter how uncomfortable we may feel, I'll tell you, I felt really uncomfortable 
when I was there with all the screaming charismatics at that John Wimber spiritual warfare, they're casting out demons and everything else. And I was just, I was clinging onto the objective promises of God every second. Okay. Because this was just way beyond anything I had ever seen in my life. And uh, it's the dependent use of logic and reason, dependent upon revelation. We believe this is what God says, and so we're going to understand it. That's how we know about angels, what the Bible says. If the Bible doesn't say it or we can't trace it back to biblical truth, then then don't believe it. And we have to be careful with that because Satan goes about like like an angel of light, and he's deceptive. And he can quote scripture like he did with Jesus when he took Jesus into the wilderness and the three temptations. Satan is quoting scripture to Jesus, but he's misinterpreting it and misapplying it. So that's what you'll see. You'll go to churches that get into this pseudo-spiritual warfare and all this uh, stomping on Satan's head kind of stuff. And you'll hear all kinds of scripture, but all taken out of context and, and distorted so you really have to know know the scripture it's revelation is our standard and that's how we know anything about angels and so when we talk to the rationalist who says oh, you, they, you can't believe in angels once again we have to go back to the scripture the scripture says there is a world out there there is a universe out there that's immaterial and that intersects with human history and the only there are there are aliens and extraterrestrials and they are angels and demons that's the only sentient life form there is in this universe and god has told us that so you can get all this garbage about area 51 and everything else but you always have to come back to a starting point with the scripture and don't try to use the scripture as a way to push this stuff into your little pet peeve. I run across people like this every now and then, and they're reading all kinds of weird stuff on the internet, and they say, "Oh, Robbie, you got to read all this stuff. You're gonna, they're, 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 these, these Nephilim are coming back." And oh, you know, no, let's let's stick with what the scripture says and quit getting off into all of this wacko stuff that has nothing to do with the Word of God. So our biblical evidence, our evidence for the existence of angels comes from the Bible. And what is that? Well, 34 of the 66 books of the Bible talk about angels by that name as existing creatures. 34 of the 66 books, that means there's 32 that don't talk about the angels. 17 Old Testament books, 17 New Testament books all talk about the angels. The biblical terms for an angel are malach, in the Hebrew, and angelos for the Greek, and they both mean the same thing, which is messenger. So this is a primary function of these creatures is to carry out the will of God in some way. And I believe that they are integral to the functioning of the material universe. God uses them in that way, and we get a glimpse of that when we see how the angels are working behind the scenes executing all of the judgments in in the book of Revelation. In fact, more is said about angels in the New Testament book of Revelation than almost all of the other books combined. So we learn a lot from that picture into, into the future. 
But from the New Testament, we learn that Jesus refers to angels frequently as real creatures. And since Jesus tells the truth, they must be real real creatures. He's not just accommodating to the mythology of the time, because remember this, of the, of the three major religious groups at the time, only two of which are mentioned in the Bible, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, there's a third group that's not mentioned in the Bible, the Essenes, but the Sadducees didn't believe in the existence of, they're the rationalists, the liberal rationalists of that day. They didn't believe in, in the existence of angels at all. So Jesus could have come along and he could have allied himself with them and it would have been just fine. And, and he would have been accepted. So, but he talks about the reality of angels and they're talked about in the gospels. Uh, angels come to accompany him in several passages, and to and to, and they're talked about that they will come and serve him at his return, at his second coming. In Matthew thirteen thirty nine to forty one, Matthew sixteen, um, that should be uh, uh, twenty three sixteen twenty three, I believe, not twenty seven. It may be twenty three two twenty seven. Uh, Matthew twenty four thirty to thirty one, Matthew twenty four thirty to thirty one, and uh, Matthew twenty five thirty one. That's the gathering of the sheep at the sheep at the time of the sheep and the goat judgments. Twenty four thirty and thirty one as the angels go and gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. In the Gospels, Jesus talks about the relationship of angels to children in Matthew eighteen ten. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, that's an interesting statement because that implies that there is an angelic guardian angel, something like that, for everyone, and or especially for infants, which is interesting. But not much more is said than this, so there's only an inference there. But there is... That, uh, this connection they have, they have an angel watching over them. We have, now what's the purpose of that? We don't know, okay? Maybe that is related to the fact that before the age of accountability, if they die, then their angel takes them to heaven. Don't get the idea that's protecting them from bad things that happen because bad things happen to babies and to children throughout human history. So we can't make, we, we can't, assume that we know what that means because it doesn't really tell us what it means. Jesus, we just studied this on Sunday morning in in Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, that after uh, Peter tries to protect Jesus and he pulls out his sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus, the high priest servant, uh, Jesus heals the ear, puts it back on, and basically reprimands Peter and says, look, if that's the plan, the Father could send um, 12 legions of angels uh, to protect me. So uh, there are, uh, he clearly affirms the existence of angels there. In Matthew 28, 2 and 3, we're told that an angel announces his uh, resurrection, may even be the one that causes the earthquake to take place, that rolls the stone away from the tomb at the time of the uh, resurrection. And this angel of the Lord descends from heaven and ro- rolls back the stone, sat on it, that's all related to this, his, his, and then his description that he looks like a, uh, a man in white. His countenance is like lightning, clothing is white as snow. 
he had on a white suit. That's why preachers should wear white suits. You know, that was a southern tradition for many years, which I'm very fond of. Okay. Angels were present at the resurrection. Angels are uh, to accompany and serve him. I already covered that. But in this one, this slide, I've got the passage right. It's 1627. Okay. Creation of angels, point five. What do we know about the creation of angels? Well, first of all, we know that angels are creatures. They're not, some, they're not eternal. They're not everlasting. They are uh, a unique set of creatures that are finite, Psalm 148, 5. In 148, 3 and 4, there's praise him, all the angels, praise him, the sun and moon, praise him, the earth, all of these things. So when verse 5 comes along, it says, let them, that is, the, that which has preceded the angels, the sun, the moon, the heavens, the waters, let them praise the name of the Lord, for he gave the command, and they came into existence. So there was a time when angels did not exist. All you had was the triune God eternal. Angels are finite. Therefore, we can conclude that when the Old Testament calls angels sons of God, it's not the same idea as what we have in the New Testament because church-age believers are adopted into the family of God. In the Old Testament, they're called sons of God, a technical phrase in the Hebrew, sons of Beneha Elohim, that that indicates that they are directly created by God. Those who are created via natural human procreation are called sons of men. They're created by their mother and their father. But the angels are called sons of God because they were directly created by God, each one individually. You don't have mother and father angels making baby angels. We know that angels are immaterial spirit creatures. They're called ministering spirits in Hebrews 1.14 using the word pneuma, uh, which is the word we have in 1 Peter 3.19 that refers to angels, in that case fallen angels. We know that they don't have material bodies of flesh and bone. They cannot be seen. They can be, uh, they're invisible. There's an episode with Elisha with his servant Gehazi and the Syrian army surrounds them and Gehazi's quaking in his boots. And Elisha prays to God, open his eyes so that he can see our protection. And all of a sudden he sees that they're surrounded by legions of angels. Okay? And that tells us that God is also doing the same kind of thing for us, protecting us. It would be interesting to see how many angels are sitting here every night at Bible class, you know, watching over us, protecting us. Paul calls the angelic forces spiritual, not flesh and blood, in Ephesians 6.12, and that angels appear like light or fire in a number of passages that describe them. For example, in Ezekiel 1.7 and 13, and Daniel 7, 9. Here's the Ephesians six twelve passage. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Okay, they're spiritual and they're organized. Principalities, powers, rulers of darkness. We'll talk about that later. We also know that angels can take on physical human form with physical human function. They can eat, they can drink, they can sleep, they can take a nap. Genesis 18 and 19. They walk, they talk, all of those things. They have, they're rational personal creatures, number of passages. Uh, they have will. They have a volition. They have self-consciousness. When Gabriel looks in the mirror, he sees Gabriel, unless he's being invisible at the time. 
Angels have all the attributes of individual personality. They have intelligence and wisdom in 2 Samuel 14.20. They can communicate in rational conversation in many passages, Genesis 19, Matthew 1.20 and 21, when Gabriel appears to to Joseph and and then also to Mary and Luke. Uh, Angels express emotions of joy, for example, joy at the creation of the earth in Job 38, 4 through 7, and Satan expresses anger in Revelation 12, 7 to 12. They have will and volition. They can choose for or against God, uh, which they did, and people are taken captive by Satan at his will, 2 Timothy 2, 6. So angels have these incredible, incredible powers. Psalm 103.20, Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, you who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. We know that uh, there are many angels. They're called, uh, they're numbered a myriad of myriads, thousands and thousands in Daniel uh, Daniel 7 uh, verse 10. And we know they were created before the earth was created. How far back, we don't know. Could have been just a few seconds. But Job 38.4 says to God's answer, asking all these questions of Job to point out Job's abysmal ignorance. And he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? When I created everything, when I laid the foundation, the foundation is the first thing you put down when, you, when you're building something. Talk to a builder. Do you put down the roof first? Second floor first? Third floor first? No, you put the foundation, and everything is built on that. So the, this term foundation refers to the very beginning of the earth. And so when he, what God says is, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And then he goes on to say, and then in verse 6 he says, to what were its foundations fastened or who laid its cornerstone when the, sons of the, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So at that starting point of God's creation of the earth, the angels are all together united singing in joy. They were already in existence, but it might not have been long. Nothing says they were there for billions and billions of years, or even millions of years, or even thousands of years, or even hundreds of years. Those big numbers didn't start being bandied about until the 19th century as a result of the big numbers that were used by evolutionists to describe the age of the universe. So therein lies the problem. Trust the scripture. Don't trust modern science. Okay, next time we'll come back. We'll start with talking about the classification of the angels, uh, different kinds, cherubs, seraphs, archangels, uh, all of these different categories that are used, and then we'll get into the origin and the fall of Satan. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study these things, to realize uh, how vast the universe is and how filled it is with another order of intelligent, rational creatures that nevertheless are immaterial and invisible to our eyes. Father, we know that uh, we are part of their rebellion and we have a role to play in that rebellion and a demonstration of your grace and your goodness and your righteousness and your justice and your love. Help us to understand these things that we can simplify this to help people understand and have hope in the midst of tragedies, understanding why there is unjust suffering, ultimately because you have given volition to your creatures and those that have used it against you
have brought suffering and misery into existence and into our world. And there's only one hope to overturn that, and that began at the cross. And for a personal life, that also begins at the cross and trust in Christ. Father, we pray that you'd help us to think these things through and understand them. In Christ's name, amen.